My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? sunset in Utah, driving across the asphalt trails that snake through the high desert as the blue turns pink to red and then purple and then a black tapestry gleaming with jewels whose celestial gaze falls upon those brave enough to trek across any of the number of vast remote regions of our American West, where few go strange energy grows, unfettered by civilian noise, a place where shapeshifters who bend light and sound and enchant possess or terrify anyone who ventures into their domain reign supreme, like today's guest who thought he'd pull over and lend his vehicle to a hitchhiker and ended up sharing his vessel with a skinwalker. I'm Mystic Mark, thank you for tuning in. This episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast featuring Ryan Burns. They said nothing, climbed right into the vehicle, and I remember the skin was very greasy and necrotic and dark, and I could just see like the the lips, the nose, very little. Couldn't tell if it was a male or female. Looked older, very bedraggled. And and almost immediately, I could tell that this thing was a human. It started to sort of go through my mind, picking out the highs and lows emotionally of my life. You know, all the good things I've done, all the bad things I've done. It just liked the high points and the low points. It, was, it seemed to be feeding arconically off of my memory bank. And doing so in a very technol, almost like technology. It sounds really crazy, but uh, it knew what it was doing. It was just going through like a Rolodex, picking out what it wanted. And I was in tears within seconds of this thing getting in my truck, which really, I mean, I was at my prime at that age. This really was not the way I was. Not an emotional guy, not, not somebody that would easily be broken. And yeah, just just beautifully broke me down within seconds. I was just hanging out of my truck, held in by my seatbelt, and it kind of had to shake me. I was catatonic. They had to kind of wake me up and ask me what I was doing there. Wasn't, you know, what, what had happened. 
Things all started for me back in Costa Rica where I was born. I was, uh, you know, kind of introduced to otherworldly events at a fairly young age. And that's fairly common in Central America and South America. I lived in a uh, ranch house that had no electricity at the time. And, you know, when you're out there in the darkness, things go bump in the night. That's just kind of how things work. And I remember hearing stories of family events that involved witchcraft or otherworldly events, um, otherworldly entities. And it's still quite common, not as common as it used to be. The um, area that I was from that's known as Guanacaste has a long history of UFOs and stories of witchcraft, demonic entities, things like that. So when, when I moved to the United States at a fairly young age, this was just how things were for me. So I, that was my worldview. And so it was a little bit of a shocker that that was not the worldview here. And I just did what everybody else does, you know, got jobs, went to school, did all the day-to-day mundane things. And I would visit Costa Rica every summer. I don't know how my, my mom did it. She was a single mom, a teacher, and she just thought it was important for us to keep the language. And she would send myself and my sister back to Costa Rica each summer to stay with family during the summer. And that's what we did. Good news is we got to keep the language and I got to be more, I had more revelations about some of these otherworldly events that take place in country-like settings, let's say. So I was staying with an aunt and I would say that this was probably just the a blast off point for me. I was staying with an aunt. I had been watching, I remember the movie, it was a horrible movie, American Ninja. And uh, with my cousins and I was staying up later than I usually did. And I stayed, I got to stay in this room, the guest room. And uh, the room had only one entrance and only one exit, just one door. And I jumped in bed. And I remember feeling, turned off the lights. I remember feeling sort of a presence. And I was a little older at this point. I was about 11 years old, um, actually exactly 11. And this presence, yeah, I, you could just sense a malevolence about it. And I felt my sheets kind of move. And I felt what can only be described as like a clawed hand grab my left toe. And I thought it was my cousin at first messing with, so I kind of gave it a kick. It grabbed my toe and pulled so hard that my entire body moved down on the bed. I was horrified. I got up, turned on the lights. There was nothing in the room, nothing at all. Very small room, nothing under the bed, nothing, you know, as I said, only one entrance in, one entrance out. Turned off the lights, jumped in bed again, and it happened again. The same thing, grabbed my toe, pulled it hard. My whole body moved down the bed. And I, I remember feeling the cold, clawish nature of this. It just seemed exactly what you, just, just non-human. Hit my knees, prayed as hard as I could. And I was an altar boy and very involved in the church. And, you know, I remember hearing, you know, people sometimes talk about that still small voice. And I remember hearing that still small voice basically say, leave the lights on, at least you'll get a look at it. And so that's what I did. 
it did not return. And that was great. Now, what's strange about this particular room is that when my father went down to Costa Rica, and, and this is how he met my mother, he was from California. My mom is from Costa Rica. He went down with the Peace Corps and he was taking some classes from my mom who was studying to be a nun at the time. And they hit it off. Well, he stayed in this same room. Another interesting fact about this room is my cousin, another cousin, a female cousin, which was older, this became her room at a point in her life when there was a lot of strange goings on. And those goings on were out of this world. And there's tons of these stories, but this is just, I'll just kind of give this one quickly. She was, for lack of a better word, seeing a guy who was seeing a witch or involved in a relationship with a witch, a known witch in the town and had a uh, child with this guy. And this witch put a curse on her, or at least so the story goes. She began in the same room that she was staying, staying in the same exact room that my dad was staying in, same exact room that I had this event stay, staying in. She began seeing cats and they would scratch her, black cats, and they would scratch her when she was in this room. She'd come out of the room and just be completely scratched up. It seemed impossible. She began seeing things, having hallucinations and psychosis, and eventually just went into a uh, fully non-responsive, almost catatonic state. So my other family members did a prayer circle for her at a wealthy uncle of mine's house, which he bought fully furnished in another town nearby. And when they had her there and they were doing this prayer circle, because things were really bad, they, they noticed that she kept pointing at a painting on the wall, an oil painting of ships on a sea, you know, your typical, typical painting. And she kept pointing at this painting saying, the man won't stop laughing at me. So finally, one of the family members went over and just pulled the painting off the wall and said, we're going to get rid of this while we do this prayer circle. Well, on the back side of the painting, there was in fact another painting of a man laughing. And that gave everybody the chills. So they continued on with this prayer circle. Things just got worse and worse. Eventually she was in a coma for, I believe, two and a half years. And she did not come out of that coma until said witch passed away. And that's the kind of stuff that I was, you know, not only close to, but believed because of my proximity in the family. And I've always just known that there are otherworldly revelations beyond the veil that are not witnessed by those who kind of go through life with blinders on, not paying attention, not looking up, not being aware of their surroundings. So anyway, Back in the United States, I, I you know, did the usual stuff, worked at bike shops, worked at ski areas, became a fly fishing guide, went to college. And I had an event as I was a fly fishing guide going to college. You know, it's a perfect job because you can, you can work during the summer as a fly fishing guide. You can go back to school in the winter, plus you can work at the ski resort and you can ski. So it just seemed to work like a perfect, you know, <laughs> I, I figured this was life. This was perfect. 
And I remember getting injured on the job. Very strange events took place. And I, I basically had time off. I injured the same left toe that I had mentioned, or I was looking for these fluorescent rocks up in the Ashley National Forest uh, near Daggett County in the high you went to Utah. Um, unic friend of mine had showed me that these things actually glow. And I was, you know, at the time I thought, what would be cooler than having a rock garden in front of the house that glowed at night? I hadn't considered the illegalities of this endeavor. And I was out picking up some of these rocks and I saw a light coming through the trees. And I just assumed wrongly that it was maybe a forest service guy, or maybe I shouldn't be out doing this. I dropped one of the rocks. It broke my toe, just shattered it. It's a mess. And then I noticed that this was not a forest service employee. This was not a vehicle whatsoever. The light rose out of the trees instead of following a normal car like path. And uh, it was a head scratcher. So I've got this injured toe. Luckily the car, the truck was a uh, automatic. So I can drive out of there with just my right foot. So I had some time on my hands and I couldn't work, couldn't get the toe wet. So I started just looking for fresh water or, you know, what they call uh, oasis water, like these extremely rural areas where nobody is, tailwaters below reservoirs, things of that nature. And there's huge fish in the Uinta Basin of Utah. I mean, for those fly fishermen out there, I hate to, the, the secret's out already, but I mean, massive, massive, amazing, wild rainbows. There's brown trout, I'm sorry, cutthroats, everything. You can, you can pretty much catch the beasts out there. And that's also true of the paranormal for some reason. Uh, you know, what, out there, there's not only, there's just less people. So your likelihood of seeing stuff is exponentially greater. So I was looking for fresh water to fish. And I remember coming across this area called Bottle Hollow Reservoir. Smack dab next to uh, Fort Duchesne Indian Reservation. This is all Native American land. A lot of it checkerboarded with private land, BLM. It's a real quandary of where you might be. So it's always best to get your tribal permits and have everything in order. So I, I just figured, you know, it makes sense that below this Bottle Hollow Reservoir, a man-made reservoir, uh, that there's probably some streams below there that might hold some fish. So I was going down a random ranch road at the time. This was the late 90s. And this was before the Ewan Bateson of Utah had multiple TV shows about it or any of this focus that it has now. And I'm going down this random ranch road and I see what appears to be a elderly Native American under a blanket, kind of shuffling down a rocky red rock cliff face. Very out of place, very kind of robotic looking, very just nothing about it made sense. I didn't know if the person needed help or not. So rolled down the window of my truck as they shuffled up towards the road. I, I said, hey, do you need to ride somewhere? They said nothing, climbed right into the vehicle. And I remember the skin was very greasy and necrotic and dark. And I could just see like the, the lips, the nose, very little. Couldn't tell if it was a male or female, looked older, very bedraggled. And, and almost immediately I could tell that this thing was a human. It started to sort of go through my mind, picking out the highs and lows emotionally of my life, 
you know, all the good things I've done, all the bad things I've done. It just likes the high points and the low points. It, was, it seemed to be feeding arconically off of my memory bank. And doing so in a very technol, almost like technology. It sounds really crazy, but uh, it knew what it was doing. It was just going through like a Rolodex, picking out what it wanted. And I was in tears within seconds of this thing getting in my truck, which really, I mean, I was at my prime at that age. This really was not the way I was, not an emotional guy, not, not somebody that would easily be broken. And yeah, just, just beautifully broke me down within seconds. So I knew something was off here. I lost about three hours and I was found by the Bureau of Indian Affairs back at the parking lot of Bottle Hollow Reservoir that was a couple miles away. And I was just hanging out of my truck, held in by my seatbelt. And it kind of had to shake me out of catatonic. They had to kind of wake me up and ask me what I was doing there. Wasn't, you know, what, what had happened. And when I told them this far-fetched crazy story, it did not appear so far-fetched to them. And I remember them saying, you know, kind of huddling up amongst themselves and saying, this guy definitely got nabbed by the skinwalker. What do we do? That's the first time I heard that term and far from the last. And ever since then, I've been, I guess, fascinated by the study and research of paranormal activity. Wow. Wow. That's a hell of a way to sum it up. Yeah, man. And I don't blame you. And given that this all occurred at a time when, you know, this subject was relatively unknown. Now you see skinwalkers being, you know, appropriated to all these different theories. But it seems to me like you're saying like, whatever this thing had planned for you, it felt almost like the way you described it, like it was depersonalized. You used the term technology, but is that what you're kind of getting at? Like this thing didn't select you for who you were, but maybe you rolled into his territory and it just hit you like it would hit anyone else? Or, or is that, am I off there? You're dead on. That's exactly how it felt to me. It felt as if you know, it, it, it had the bait out there, which was itself. And it just felt as if I had roamed into its arena mm. and it, it was playing with me the way we would play with like a small animal or something. And now yeah. considering, considering what, you know, I've, I recently was listening to some Dr. Gregory Little was discussing about the trickster and others have talked uh, at length about this phenomena of the trickster. Given, you know, everything you've done since, Ryan, I mean, with all due respect, you're kind of a trailblazer in this subject. You're going out and you're bringing it to the masses. Do you think this uh, skinwalker maybe had some intention for you, like in this trickster sort of way, where it's like planting a seed in the garden of your mind that then grows into like this, you know, role as a researcher and, and, you know, an investigator, really. I definitely feel that, yeah, it, it got its hooks in me and it is a trickster. Whatever this intelligence is that roams the landscape in many of these areas, and it's not just the Uinta Basin of Utah, but, you know, you hear this at, in other cultures, you uh, hear this in the mystery schools, you know, if you want to go to the great teacher, it always talks about going to the high desert. And 
there seems to be an intelligence. It is a presence, almost as if nurtured by the high deserts themselves. I don't know. It, it sounds very wild, but you find this not only in the holy cities in the Middle East, you find it in the southwestern United States. I've spoken with researchers who have gone to great lengths. I'm trying to get out to Saudi Arabia to talk to some spiritual advisors who are very interested and deeply involved in studying the jinn, which I think is just another name for the same phenomenon, just a different culture, just a different belief system. But, you know, you have these entities that can practically do anything, almost demigod status. They seem to have a precognitive intelligence, as Colonel John Alexander coined the term. And they seem to think or seem to know what you are about to do by your thinking. So they seem to know what you are about to think. And it's precognitive. And the only way to keep them at bay is to almost become a trickster yourself and engage in these playful games in a way that keeps them interested. Things like random number generation to dictate the way your, your research goes. Things like some of the things that they love are games. They love games. They love to have trinkets placed in areas that they roam and they will engage these trinkets as an example. I, I get, I get strange things happen at my house quite often. And you, a lot of people are now very familiar after the skinwalkers at the Pentagon book by George Knapp and Dr. Colm Kelleher, they mentioned something that we've all kind of known for a while, those who are in the loop but they've kind of put it, put it mainstream, the hitchhiker phenomena, that this entity can actually follow you home. And how far you live from the place really doesn't matter. They can, they can kind of get on you. And they can attach themselves to you and your dwelling, and they can play with you. And I've got a couple toddlers. I, I go to Utah often and research this. I'm lucky enough to have a property known as Space Wolf Research. And... We just engage in this kind of back and forth playfulness with these entities, as well as looking for things, aerial phenomena in the sky. And the subject is extremely flammable from an emotional perspective because I'll do all the right stuff. I'll sage myself afterwards. I'll say all the right prayers. I incorporate Native American beliefs into my protection as well as Catholicism. Rosicrucianism and other things, you know, whatever it takes, it doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you take the correct steps to protect yourself, whether you're Buddhist, Muslim, doesn't matter. Just, just make sure that you pray not to have this happen. And I'll come home thinking I did everything hundred percent right. And we will, you know, see our children's toys directly affected toys, doing things that toys shouldn't do. And it's super creepy. So uh, that's just a personal example, but you hear it all the time. You hear it all the time. Wow. Yeah. I had to just jot down a burst of notes there because there are so many things you said that I feel like we could go in a bunch of different directions. I hope to circle back to all of them at some point, but you mentioned Saudi Arabia, which to my geographical knowledge is fairly 
south compared to utah utah is you know sort of if we're going to look at the the longitudes right we could say maybe the gobi desert or like the mongolia area would be like latitudinally like connected to this area in some way and then i i wanted to ask you before maybe we get too far into the sort of looser connections what do we know about the Uinta Basin, the history, the the dynamics of the energy there? Are there any vortexes? Are there any sacred sites or, or even, you know, a stone alignments of any sort? Tons and tons. I mean, just south of what is technically known as the Uinta Basin, it, there is the world's largest array of petroglyphs that have ever been found on the planet a location known as nine mile canyon which is more like 90 miles but it is absolutely stunning and this area in particular when you when you think of a place where there's like lost history this place blows stuff off the map there's another place thompson springs that's to the south that has otherworldly petroglyphs that are almost inexplicable. In close proximity, there uh, is an area called the McConkie Ranch area that these landowners have opened up for people to actually see these petroglyphs and they have headhunter glyphs and other glyphs that aren't seen anywhere else. The only place that there is anything similar is actually in Sardinia, which brings us back to what you were saying from a um, latitudinal angle that, you know, it's right along the same you know, circular path along the earth and many of the same historical remnants explaining giants. These giants seem to be cannibalistic, have multiple rows of teeth, larger feet. And, you know, what are the odds that these things are seen in two different, completely different parts of the world? The reason I'm so mesmerized by the, the, the stuff going on in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia is because it is a completely different culture that is looking at something from a completely different angle. And that's allowing us to come in with our belief system and see something completely new, like from a totally different perspective. And I think that's super interesting when you're talking about something that is the trickster, the, um, an entity that seems to roam these high deserts and do so with reckless abandon, being able to do things that are godlike, much like, you know, the gin. I mean, what is the theory of the gin? You know, that you can literally imprison these things within lamps, much like King Solomon historically did, if you follow any of that, you know, old, old writing. And that these things can do anything you ask, because that's kind of what their capabilities, it, not, there's very little that is outside of the realm of capability. And when I've been in the UN debates and they're doing some serious research with others, there's a very common, very common phenomena that takes place, which is a disembodied voice phenomena. And it usually hovers over your head, a range of maybe seven to 12 feet, where it sounds like there's a conversation taking place above you, much like the Greeks described, you know, in their mythological teachings that they could hear the gods above them talking. And it's super real, man. Like multiple people have encountered this with me, with others. And 
I personally don't know what it is, but I think that there is this non-corporeal entity or entities that are able to do this. And they're literally talking about you almost in a mocking kind of funny way. And it is not English that they're speaking. You know, it sounds like a very ancient language. And so I think that going to a place like Saudi Arabia, I'm trying to plan a trip with a Native American friend of mine. So we get three perspectives while going into, into these areas. And in speaking with people like Jacques Vallée, he has encountered pretty amazing stuff from uh, very amazing teachers in the Middle East. And it, there, there's just a new world emerging as far as research and the different angles that everybody is taking on, you know, research. It's not all just UFO Twitter. There's, you know, you can get pretty deep grassroots and organic in your research. And I think that's what matters. The, the brokenness of the world or the very simple fact that we've all kind of been locked up in our homes, looking at dark screens. And being, it, 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 there's an instability there that isn't, doesn't seem right to me. And it, getting out and doing these things seems more right to me and it feels more right to me. And, and we have such a short time on this planet that it's, it's, it's good to delve into these mysteries, the mystery schools, the, the research that others have done in the paranormal in the past. And I think that, you know, that is the magic of life. Like when you, there's so much more to this existence than what we are fed, uh, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I agree with you 100% on the point of getting out there and exploring. We may not all live in such a potent area as that particular section in Utah, but I'll tell you, last year and the year prior, especially with the less amount of people on the road, everybody was freaked out and locked in. I spent a lot of time driving around exploring and I used a dice to sort of determine this random generation of, of path, you know, like, where am I going to go? I don't know. Let's put a random number on each, you know, of the two roads that we have here at this fork and let the dice decide where we'll end up. And, you know, my girlfriend and I played this game several times, just sort of bouncing from one area to the next. and. It's funny, in hindsight, we were going to all these places that we later found out were a part of other, you know, researchers who are much more well-researched, a part of their plots of how the sacred landscape of New England is panned out, right? So I'm up here in Connecticut. We went and we just instinctively found this place that is according to Peter Shampoo, like a sacral chakra for the area. It's this big reservoir in this part of Connecticut where it's so secluded, like you could have a phone service in pretty much every part of Connecticut except right here, you know? So I want to ask you about your process, your techniques, like when we use random numbers, is it as simple as rolling a dice? Would you uh, recommend that or, or are there more advanced techniques that you employ? I think rolling dice is great. That's awesome. That is exactly the type of rander, random number generation, whether you're using something digital like Randonautica, which is an app you can get on your phone, or rolling dice, or throwing tea leaves, or even, you know, going down the road, dark, slightly darker roads of the tarot or the Ouija board. These are all, all techniques that have been used, believe it or not, by some of the highest, most black budget government research projects. And 
you know, these tidbits that you find that when it, when all else fails, they, they rely on these ancient mystery techniques, you know, that says something. And there's a reason why there is, you know, mystery schools, because there's mystery in the world and there's schools that have legitimately written down processes and theories and advancements of mankind throughout that time. And they go all the way back to Egypt and before Egypt. And, you know, the Egypt is kind of the elephant in the room because, yeah, there's, there's these huge, you know, structures, these huge right. pyramids. These huge, I mean, it's kind of hard. It's the elephant in the room. Why are these there? And, you know, in the search of this love of the unknown and wisdom about it, it's important to not leave anything out of the mix. Absolutely use cutting edge technology. Absolutely use everything at your disposal, but don't forget about the tried and true methods that have been written about for. And maybe we can get into some of those because I know you consider yourself well-versed in a lot of the secret society subjects. And I know divination is a part of many different secret societies or, or mystery schools. Um, it's also sort of funny that we started talking about deserts here because deserts seem to be in proximity to many of these spiritually potent places, Egypt, of course. But then again, Mongolia, we know that that whole area is considered sort of like the origin maybe of, of this form of shamanism that spread all around the world in a very, very, you know, distant part of our past. It's made its way all across the world. The word shaman is a little sort of outside of the context of what we're really talking about when we get into, you know, these Native American medicine men and, and th there's a more advanced level, but you understand what I'm saying. There's this sort of global culture of our interaction with what we could call tutelary spirits. And even the founders of this country here in America were considering these tutelary spirits when they were picking out where to set up the first new cities of the colonies and things of that nature. So yeah, let, let's get into those divination techniques, if you, if you will. Super important. Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought up Mongolia and the Gobi Desert. And, you know, I mean, talk about if you want to see stars, that's the place. You know, if you want to like be walking along and just see a huge dinosaur bones sticking out of the sand, you know, like that's the place. If you, it's very similar, in fact, to probably what the Uinta Basin of Utah used to be like. There's uh, a lot of dinosaur monuments in near the Uinta Basin of Utah. I'm also glad that you brought up our founding fathers, the um, intrinsic way that they have included mystery school programming into founding me, many of our major cities. And it's, yeah, it's, it's undeniable. I mean, it's undeniable looking at this particular country's history, the influence that mystery schools and Masonic rights had, you know, in, in creating many of well, the, the most powerful country that we know of on the planet. And it, there's something there. There's something there. So there's a legitimacy to absolutely. Well, can we get into some examples, if, if you know any of, of you know, sure. where these mystery schools are, have been employed? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's important also, a, a strange note is that the Utah is obviously very LDS or Mormon, as it was traditionally known. And, you know, Joseph Smith was, in fact, very into divination, very into these mystery schools. And, you know, now it is one of the largest religions on the planet. And the mystery schools are... You know, there's a reason these secret societies had to be secret, because typically the power elite of any social construct don't want many to know the windows or the methods to go beyond the fear, anguish, and pain that the average citizen has to a piece of presence where they can get past the illusion of reality and manifest things for their own benefit. And the devotion to this is obvious in, in all major civilizations. So, gosh, there's so many places we could go with this. Our founding fathers, many of them were, in fact, Masons. They were very well known to, you know, partake in secret rites. It's important. I think we have a lot of lost history on this, on this continent. It kind of, history is one of those things that, easy to throw the rug over and, and just pretend it was one thing when in fact it was a completely other. And when we open up to the mystery, it leads us to a kind of illumination of the past and what really happened. For example, there is a very, very interesting fact that with the new Dr. Strange movie that came out, I love how these same topics come up. And I mean, people wonder why these Marvel movies are like the best selling. And it's because it is the most relatable from an actual human perspective. And, you know, Doctor Strange is based on many characters in the past, among them John D. And not so well known, um, there is a gentleman known Pashal Beverly Randolph, and, or known as P.B. Randolph. And he's a gentleman who his history has been lost due to the fact that he was African-American. And he was, he was born in New York City, the son of William Beverly Randolph, a plantation owner. And at the age of five or seven, he lost his mother and he basically was begging on the streets. Now, fast forward, just imagine 1873, you're orphan, you're black. This gentleman, Randolph, he accomplished so much in his life and began to delve into the mystery schools. He became a metaphysician. And actually, many of his ideas and philosophies were taken by Blavatsky, Crowley, Alistair Crowley, Elipas Levy. I mean, a lot of these people. And if you look up P.B. Randolph, the amount of literature that he wrote and the amount of influence that he had in the occult at that time period is astounding hmm. the reason there the reason he's not you know up there with Aleister Crowley and Madame Blavatsky is because he was black and this was uh unpopular at the time and right some right. would argue yeah some would argue it still is and it you know it's interesting he founded his own secret society Abraham Lincoln was a member they had a great white brotherhood Benjamin Franklin was a member Thomas Paine was a member and he was really close friends with Abraham Lincoln. And an interesting story was when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, there was a train going to his funeral, which P.B. Randolph was very involved in funding a lot of the things having to do in the periphery about his funeral. 
and he was on that train and there became a time where some of the people on the train said, Hey, what's the black guy doing on the train? And for respect of his friend, Abraham Lincoln, he got up on the next stop instead of causing a fuss. And that's just kind of the guy he was. And if you look up PB Randolph, he looks eerily similar to Dr. Strange. And he was also kind of going down a different path. He was also the first major importer of hashish in this country. And the, the, the esoteric work that he was endeavoring to take on at that time are mind blowing. And you, you know, you find this in many cultures, there is a lost history, a shift that happens where sometimes it's more favorable to forget certain individuals than give them the, you know, the accolades that they deserve. Mm. Well, and it definitely seems like it was sort of a mixed situation of, of, you know, factors that weren't in maybe his favor, at least to the respect of, you know, being remembered in history. Not only, to your point, was he multiracial, but he was practicing what Wikipedia deems, I mean, we would call it sex magic, but they call it erotic alchemy, which maybe has an a entirely different... Uh, no, it takes us to a page called sex magic. So yeah, so it says here that he was practicing sex magic, which, you know, at that time and probably still at this time would provoke, you know, suspicion and shock from the more conservative and fundamentalist groups that left Europe and came here and, and made deep roots. It seems now that, you know, we have this sort of fundamentalism in the conspiracy community, uh, you know, calling everything a cult evil. And I definitely do not find myself in that category of opinion. I'm more open-minded to the fact that, you know, magic and alchemy are like tools. They can be used for good or bad. Uh, they can be used, you know, recklessly or very respectfully and very carefully. But you know, when it comes to Peshal Beverly Randolph, did he innovate any of the these sort of practices or was it more like, you know, in the same respect that Crowley and Blavatsky kind of just did a hodgepodge of things they learned from Eastern cultures with things they were learning in Western cultures? Was it a sort of synthesis that he created or, or was he actually inventing practices of his own? You know, that is such a good question, and I'm so glad you asked it because it comes back, you know, when people hear the word sex magic, they automatically uh, think of Crowley and lower vibratory forces, you know, leaving no stone unturned in trying to find out what is, you know, the inner workings or what makes this clock of, you know, natural law tick. And I think it's important to remember that there's also high vibratory forces. And that was more the inclination of P.B. Randolph. He was almost the exact opposite of Aleister Crowley. He believed, which I mean, really sex is sort of magic. It is probably the most magical thing that we as humans interact with where we can actually create life. So from a creative uh, perspective, it's probably the um, highest force and power that we are entitled with. And so yeah, pretty, pretty wild stuff. I mean, anybody mostly is, is physical man or woman can engage in this. So he was, I would say, 
more higher vibratory and and he would believe in things like not wasting, you know, the seed or the, you know, saving it for partnership with his companion, who his first wife's name was actually Mary Jane. So go figure. Being the first, <laughs> being the first major hashish importer of the country. And, you know, it just gets back to that law of hurries, trust magistus, which is absolute, you know, as above, so below. You kind of have to have both. You have to have the inner and you have to have the outer and the way, the same way you have to have the Crowley's, you have to have the Randolph's. And it's important because many people, as soon as they hear the term secret society or a cult, they automatically believe that it's something negative, but you can't have, you know, these dark forces without these light forces also taking place in the phenomena of the universe. So yin and yang, it's, it's interesting and both have to remain hidden for good reason. You know, the dark forces have to remain hidden because if not, they won't be able to take part in these dark occult practices and the light forces have to remain hidden because the dark forces necessarily don't want them out there. And I, I have heard Mark Passio talk at length about the organization that PB Randolph started and how it is a light force not a dark force. And, you know, you, you've got to have, you know, the undercover, the undercover policeman on the corner, as well as the undercover, you know, drug dealer in the alley. So everything is sort of undercover. I don't know if I kind of went tangential on that. No, I get where you're going with that. And I think, you know, a lot of people, like I was kind of maybe leading you towards saying that because of the fundamentalist comment, but a lot of people just are suspicious of any group that conduct is, conducts itself in secrecy. But I've always stressed this to people that the original mystery schools operated that way to test the average person so that not just anybody could learn these things because at that time, maybe this is idealistic of me, but at that time we're told the forces of good were in control of the orders and the priesthoods and all this, and they wanted to filter out the bad apples. And, and maybe at some point in history that, you know, became inverted and the bad apples gained control and they started to, you know, weed out the good ones. And then characters like Mr. Pashal, you know, comes along and he creates, you know, flips it over again and, and creates a good sector that now this, you know, circumstances are more complicated because you have bad groups, good groups. So it's so much more complex than just, oh, the, anybody who's in a secret society is evil. You know, anybody listening to this podcast, I think we've gotten that far. So I can appreciate what you're saying. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, as it pertains to Crowley, was he friends with Mr. Randolph? Did they know each other? Did they have any interactions? You know, that has been a very debated topic. And because they had a lot of the same mutual connections, there was a portion of the FRC, the Fraternitas Rosicrucis, that was originally founded by Krum Heller down in South America. And there was more connection there. However, that was a break off or a breakaway from the original um, FRC or the Fraternitas, the, the Fraternitas Rosicrucis that P.B. Randolph 
actually became grandmaster of. And he did so by, he was a traveling man, go figure, back to that, you know, Masonic term. He literally traveled and went to Europe and joined these groups. And, you know, you get back to, for example, a lot of people often think of Whitesop in 1776 and the ideas of the Illuminati and when this came about. And many of the same shifts were happening then. You had the incorporation of cannabis. You had secret meetings. You had Whitesop and his group who were quite literally trying to shake the foundations of the power elite to bring, you know, benefit to the masses. And this was seen as a very evil thing. And it still is. When people talk about the Illuminati, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, that, that can't be good. And, uh, you know, just the term Illuminati, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it just means the, you know, illuminated, the enlightened ones. And I always think back to, you know, the, how, whatever anyone's opinion is of the Christ child and how, you know, this was seen as a huge, huge infringement and enemy of the power elite of the time. You know, here we have a guy who is for all sakes and, and for all purpose doing high occult magic in plain view of everyone walking on water, doing this, doing that, removing demons and in, in plain view of everybody and wanting absolutely nothing in pay or return. And <clears throat> this has kind of been crystallized in our history that now it's seen as a good thing, but at the time. I mean, this, this guy was enemy number one, enemy number one. The Nazarene was enemy number one and, and quite literally crucified for it. So yeah, I don't know the, the world always kind of seems to wait in darkness for this light that is usually people, people who will put themselves out there in ways that are not beneficial to them, but beneficial to all. And whether it's Gandhi, Buddha, the list just goes on. Ad infinitum. Mm. These, inter- these individuals are usually enemy number one, and they pay dire consequences for being so selfless. Right. Right. And I asked that question and then realized that Crowley was born the year Randolph died. So I guess I shouldn't have asked that, but, you know, not to put you on the spot. But the, it does say here, and of course, this is Wikipedia that there's disputed circumstances around Randolph's death. And considering he was a part of the group he was a part of, have you ever wondered maybe if it's possible that he faked his own death and, and went on to live somewhere else outside of the purview of whoever knew him in the Midwest? You know, that's an interesting, there's a lot. If, if ever a death was surrounded in controversy, it was his. The official the official belief of what happened is probably the farthest from the truth. And interestingly, he married a woman from Ephraim, Utah, if I'm not mistaken, which brings another strange coincidence. But he, when he died, it, it, was, it was sort of like, you know, many claims, many claims on how he died. In my opinion, in the research I've done, he was definitely murdered. And it is... It's tough, though, because it's a quandary of information that's all very old, and it's hard to go through it. 
it is there there have been those who who believe that he may have faked his own death because of the fact that so many were trying to murder him but it it's a tough one it's a really tough one it it it's hard to know for sure but he was definitely as we said enemy number 1 to a lot of people and what do we know about what became of you know his legacy and and the groups that he was a part of after his, you know, death or murder or even <laughs> disappearance. Do you, you know, what's his legacy? Is there a group that still, you know, follows his general practices or have they been sort of altered or modernized? How true is, you know, you know, because there are many different groups that call themselves Rosicrucians. I mean, there's a bunch. So it's hard to just say, okay, we're talking about the Rosicrucians here, but he's kind of a part of what we could probably say is the first Rosicrucian order to be established in the United States. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. I, I, he was definitely without, without going into specifics, absolutely the first and the first, but just because of the time period, the first secret society in the United States. And there is an influence in the spiritual nature of his great work that continues on to this day. And it also has to be held fairly secretively because there are other groups that are fundamentally and similarly based, yet more negative in nature. Many people often think of, you know, the skull and bones. And I mean, many of these groups, regardless, you know, have many of the same connections historically. So it's sort of like, like an, a, like an octopus that has many tentacles, right? They all kind of start from some of the same basic tenets and you can't control where those tentacles go. Some go to the dark side, some go to the light. And it is unfortunate that, you know, a lot of them have to have to be very, fairly careful because there are power structures at hand that don't want certain groups around. And these groups have to have to stay for all intents and purposes off the radar and they use attraction rather than promotion uh, for membership. So people have to do the research, have to look down the, uh, the dark histories of our past that has been covered by like historians. I mean, a lot of this stuff is not easily available and easily found. There's a reason a lot of these old books are so expensive and hard to find. But when you find them and you, and you look into them, yeah, there's absolutely a lineage that continues on in his name. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I understand what you mean. Attraction as opposed to promotion. I think there's a, a mystery school that is waiting for anyone in their mind. Like there's a process. I don't know. I don't know if, if this is something you agree with, but there's a process, and maybe you do, please feel free to interrupt me whenever, that anyone who goes and, and does what you've done and, and venture out into these energetically potent places, have uh, yourself out there ready, receptive to these strange experiences, this is like an initiation into a mystery school in a way, maybe just an internal one. But I think that when people listen to a show like this, they want to participate. 
They want to, you know, become an initiate themselves, so to speak. What what do you recommend people do going out into the their yard? Maybe they live in, in Utah. Maybe they live somewhere else with a strange paranormal vibe. What do you recommend people do? You know, it's interesting because at the time when White Top was quite literally starting the Illuminati in 1776, Father Escalante and Dominguez were mapping trade routes for Spanish gold through the Uinta Basin of Utah at the exact same time. And they were encountering in their notes otherworldly presences and high strangeness. So um, it just kind of goes to show that, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of things that are coincidental historically. And, you know, that it's easy to miss if you don't, if you don't keep an eye on it. Like, like, like what you mentioned about Randolph and Crowley, it's, it's a good thing, but it went down the way it did or else absolutely there would be murkiness in the water as far as, you know, were, were these guys hanging out together. And although Crowley took a lot of the information that Randolph left behind, as well as Blavatsky and others, it's sort of, you know, you have to have these interesting individuals that are all revelatory in, in the nature of this, this magical occurrence, which is, you know, the occult, the metaphysical, the doing things which are technically impossible from a human perspective. And yeah, the, the list is ad infinitum. I mean, there's, there's a lot of individuals that do this stuff. I remember before we kind of go on a different path, I was speaking with somebody I think very highly of, and that is Jay Parker. He is a, he is a great guy who was the victim of multi-generational satanic abuse, you know, child ritual abuse. And I, I respect him very much, much as I respect Mark Passio. And, you know, Jay Parker, I remember having a conversation with him when, when I was, this was years and years ago, when I was trying to ask myself, you know, is this stuff real? Is this stuff, I mean, come on, multi-generational satanic ritual abuse. Give me a break. Is this real? And I, I, I'm one of those guys that I have to actually find out. He told me the locations to go what to look for and what would happen and what to do if that happened. And he said, you want to go to these areas. You want to hang out outside of these businesses. You want to look for this, that, and the other. And if they engage, you need to get the heck out of there. And sure enough, I remember booking flights. And this is not the stuff that your armchair researcher does. I mean, I remember my family thinking I was crazy. No pun intended. I mean, you know, I'm booking flights to Rose Valley, Pennsylvania. And I am going to Arden, Delaware, and I am looking at locations and neighborhoods that are supposedly 90% satanic ritual abuse neighborhoods. They have to have the 10% in there to be the buffer. You know, you got to have your normal soccer moms in there too, so that people can't say, well, there's something weird about that neighborhood, but very wealthy families and very very strange goings on, large acreages, for lack of a better word, literally huge burning structures in the back of many of these homes, massive shrine-like fireplaces that are made to get rid of evidence. 
and businesses that he told me would be fronts for some of the satanic ritual abuse of children. And he even told me the times and places to um, be outside and what to look for. And sure enough, everything the guy said was on point. I, I went to the places at the times that he mentioned, and I saw, you know, without being involved, just being from the peripheral looking in, I saw pure darkness. I saw everything that he claimed was going on. I had no reason to question any of his claims. In fact, one particular area that, you know, even, even things on the road, it has, you know, the implications are crazy. I mean, if you just followed markers on the road, you would know where to go, you know, just from a very outside perspective. And, you know, in some of these locations, he explained that, you know, if I started looking at some of the structures, which should be public, that I would get engaged with. And sure enough, I was in a suit and tie. I had my real estate car. I acted like I was looking at real estate, looking at some of these public structures that are out there off the main roads. And almost instantly, I was attacked. I was, people engaged with me and said, get out of here. And I said, no, 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 I'm, a, you know, I'm here for real estate purposes. Here's my card. They said, we don't want your card. Get out of here. And so, you know, there's some darkness to some of these mysteries too, but you have to take that with the light. So there's it's the same way there's darkness in certain areas, there's light in other areas. And I've, I've verified both of those. There's some very great organizations and like, like Jay Parker's situation, I 100% now believe that things from a darker occult perspective take place. And there is multi-generational satanic ritual abuse taking place in our country. Wow. And I, I, I'm glad we got there because I was just recently, and I don't know how we got there, but I'm glad you told me that because I was recently looking into this strange death of Jennifer Syme, a one-time girlfriend of Keanu Reeves and they met at a party that Keanu Reeves' band Dogstar, of all names for a band, uh, there was a party for the band and they met. Three years later, she dies in a weird car accident after a um, party at Marilyn Manson's house, of all people, and go figure the whole time she's David Lynch's assistant. So very strange things, but I learned that Keanu Reeves as a child spent time in Rose Valley, Pennsylvania, and performed at the Hedgerow Theater. So it's very strange, very strange, <laughs> and it's very dark. And, you know, given we just discussed Beverly, or I always mix up the names because they're so vague. It's like, which one's his first name? It's Peshal Beverly Randolph, right? So we, we just talked about him, and he seems like a sort of hero figure in a sea of anti-heroes, and that's the wrong term, maybe villains. In a sea of villains, he's an anti-hero. Is that still true today? Like, do you know about any groups that are in opposition to these dark forces? I mean, obviously, we have the, the people who are above board, so to speak, in the open public, Jay Parker being one of them, researching, sharing his story, sharing his actual traumatic experiences. But, you know, operating under the realms of secrecy, are the forces of light present? Absolutely. There are opposing forces with the same knowledge bases 
and there's forces of extreme light, like you mentioned, and there are forces of extreme darkness. And it is, um, it's interesting, you know, it is interesting because the only way to fight fire is with fire. And, and that, it kind of, you know, that is very much back to the, as above, so below, you need to have balance and harmony. And sadly, the only way that that works is there has to be equal opposing forces to create balance. Absolutely. And we see these dark forces trying to poke and prod at the collective consciousness, inducing us with these, you know, mass trauma events. And one of these came in the form of the, the Vegas shooting. And I know you have researched this quite a bit, as much as you're willing to get into, because it is a, a very controversial and potentially dangerous conversation to have, but we're all for that here on this show. But what have you learned? Is there anything that you've seen that, you know, possibly shows that there's evidence that these occult groups were participating in that event? It's so interesting you bring this up. Um, the, so yes, and yes, I, I really kind of knew immediately that this was iffy. The whole situation was iffy. Something, something was fishy about it. And whether that be the timeline that Lombardo, the acting law enforcement, which was speaking to the mass media, great guy. I mean, he does what he's told. That's his job. But the timeline was very off. The reports from individuals that were there were all very off. And the fact that it is in such close proximity to, again, the elephant in the room, the Luxor pyramid, that also lends credence to things being off. And there is, there is something really creepy, and that is the personal, I, I, I kind of was of the opinion, I'm not going to get involved. Not only was, that I, was I at a wedding in Mexico at the time it happened and I came back the next day, but I, I said to myself, you know, it's a good thing I wasn't there because I would have been the first guy, you know, driving down that direction to see what was going on, checking out, you know, bullets in the wall, things of that nature before the FBI set in. And by the time I got back from Mexico, and my flight touched down at McCarran at the time, you know, the FBI had already set up shop and they had quadranted. The whole area was sealed off and it was that way for a long time. Now I'd got a lot of pictures when I got there the day, the next day. And, um, I asked a lot of questions and none of those really stuck out to me as much as the coincidental personal event that took place after that, which was, my landscaper, I was, I was doing a landscaping in the back of a home that had zero backyard and I had some landscapers putting in the backyard and I just started talking to him like, Hey, what do you guys think of the shooting? And it just happened. And I was speaking Spanish to these guys. And, you know, one of them said, you know, it's really weird to say something because my close friend was the one providing room service to that room. And he said there wasn't one guy in there there was at least four people in there and they were there for a week. And 
he was bringing tons of stuff, tons of food in, tons of uh, whatever they needed to that room. And there was at least four guests in that room. So that was the first, I mean, the guy had no reason to tell me that he didn't know anything about me, anything about my background or what my interests are. It was something that just happened. And when that happens, that's when I know that the universe or God himself is, is working. And so I said, okay, maybe this, this deserves some looking into long story short. I've written a book about it, which I cannot publish. Apparently no publisher will touch it. And I've been threatened with lawsuits if I come forward with it. So I don't know how I'm going to release it. Might have to just drop it on the dark web or something, but there's a lot to track with this whole situation. And there's a lot of doubt. There was the woman who was in the crowd saying, you're all going to die before the concert started. Was she a mad woman or was she someone who was legitimately trying to tell people, Hey, like be, be aware because among the dark forces, one scapegoat that they have is that they escape karmic debt by warning those they are going to engage with. And so if you come out and say exactly that, Hey, you're all going to die, get out of here and nobody moves. It's on them. You did your part. And that is one of the keys that dark forces use to escape karmic debt. Keep in mind, whenever, kind of going back to some of the satanic ritual abuse stuff, the Luxor, there have been cases of, I know one in particular that I found out through someone in uh, another person in Utah who was speaking with a woman who claimed that there were satanic ritual abuse sites underneath the Luxor in the past, in the basements, in the, you know, where they, where they kind of make the place run. And her stories were very dark. Also in Vegas, many people are familiar with Zach Baggins' music. Regardless of your thoughts and beliefs of ghost hunters and what he has going on, there is the location of the museum is the location where Jenna Jameson claims as a child, she grew up in that home. And in the basement of that home, there were satanic ritual um, abuse circumstances that took place from on a regular basis and that her family was involved with that. When, when looking this stuff up, it all kind of, it does, it does line up. They were in that house. According to Zach himself, that basement is the darkest point of that, that structure. And he's looked into other things that have verified that this was taking place just right there off the strip, off Charleston and uh, Las Vegas Boulevard. Also interesting, it is next door to the Masonic Lodge here in Las Vegas. Nothing against the Masonic Lodge here in Las Vegas. It happens to be Lodge number 32 and another coincidence. And there's good people at that lodge, but the, the proximity, the locations, some of the historical features of Las Vegas all lend credence to the dark, uh, dark force that is also present here. So yeah, there's a lot to the Las Vegas shooting, a lot to the Las Vegas shooting. It's, there's so many directions we can go with this. That's fascinating to hear that sort of, you know, secondhand eyewitness account through one of the employees of the hotel. I mean, that those are the kind of stories that I'm sure Anybody who digs in deep enough, they'll find, you know, plenty of those sorts of things. And that's how the media gets ahead of it, by putting these narratives out first, second, third day, you know, putting it out in a way that, you know, all of the 
small voices get drowned out by this terrible, oh, it's so sad. And it is, it really is tragic, but that's what they're, that's what they're pulling at. They're pulling at our heartstrings, manipulating our emotional intelligence and subverting our critical thinking. So yeah, I'm not surprised that, you know, unfortunately you, you've received threats for trying to publish this. And I, you know, I pray for your safety, brother, because you're doing a really, really, you know, strong thing and, and a service for us as human beings, because all of this occulted darkness, it can't exist. It can't exist in this new age that we're entering in. And we're going to see more, we're going to see more tragic events, unfortunately. But I think every time one of these events occurs in the future, there are going to be five more Ryan Patrick Burns there to suss it out and research it and, you know, publish a book potentially, or throw it out on the dark web for those who have the, you know, skills to dig it up. And please do send me a link if that ever occurs, because I'm, I'm fascinated. But given that, you know, they're isn't a likelihood it's going to be published anytime soon. What are some of like the hot points that you, you know, want to talk like that you think this book touches on that maybe you don't hear other people talking about? What are some of the highlights from your research? Totally. Multiple things going on. You have quite literally uh, a lot of alliteration that takes place, which is always sort of a call sign when these, when the events take place that are planned. And you have the Patsy, which is Stephen Paddock. You know, he is amazingly a guy with virtually zero family. And the family he does have, there's interesting aspects to that. There is the situation with the phone that got found on site, a government phone, which is supposed to be a burner phone that you can just toss away. But it had been recalibrated to basically... The guy that makes the batteries for this phone, which you can swap out batteries to it. And these, these phones are used in very highly sensitive projects. So um, the guy that makes the batteries for this phone, I'm trying to pull up my, I can pull up my book here. I can get uh, all his information. But he, he basically the next day became a person of interest. I mean, how strange is that? Just, a, just an engineer that makes the batteries for this particular phone that you can swap out, which is a government only phone. And he, this gentleman became a person of interest. He had a, a special needs daughter, which he cared for and took, took care of. And shortly after he became a person of interest, he purportedly killed himself and his special needs daughter. Things that are very uncharacteristic, in my opinion, an uncharacteristic of a gentleman that, that he was in his position. So that was very strange. There was also very strange flight logs or the absence thereof of flight logs by helicopters in the air. I've actually, we very strangely done business with some of these helicopter companies in the Uinta Basin of Utah. They stayed at one of them, I won't say which, stayed at my bed and breakfast that I used to run in the Uinta Basin of Utah, still own it. And they were doing oil and gas work. I mean, I'm I lived with these guys for months, really cool guys, but very capable helicopter pilots. And I'm talking mostly ex-military and doing special projects. You know, that, that's where the best uh, skills come from. Really nice guys, but again, strange 
helicopter flight logs. Some are missing completely. And many, many people on the ground claim that they believe they were getting shot upon from above as in possibly from a helicopter. Then there is another strange helicopter coincidence, which took place in the Middle East. And this was shortly after the situation because um, the prince of Saudi Arabia happened to be, that was strange, happened to be in Vegas at the, at the time of the shooting. And there is a lot of evidence that points to the possibility that he was the possible target of an assassination attempt. Among the evidence, the directions of the shooting came from, obviously, the Mandalay Bay. Those who are familiar with the Mandalay Bay and the Four Seasons, the owner, for the most part of the Four Seasons, is a rival member of the same Saudi family. Without naming names, this stuff is all over the internet, very easy to find. Just trying not to put, you know, the amazing magnification of the internet solely on me so people can research this themselves. So the shortly after the shooting, the Prince of Saudi Arabia was in fact saved. He, he was not hurt and he was witnessed going through various casinos with security detail hurriedly getting him out of there. A lot of that security detail was ours. He went back uh, to the Middle East and shortly afterwards, a helicopter full of more rivals in the royal family of his was shot down. I mean, very close proximity after the Vegas shooting. In addition, those that were not shot down were arrested and imprisoned, and the charges were basically, you know, you're, you're not on the same page as me. There were really no charges at all. They were just imprisoned, arrested, and we're talking billionaires arresting billionaires arresting billionaires. I mean, everybody's a freaking billionaire. So the leverage and the power that these people hold is beyond our imagination. So when there is a rivaling faction of the same royal family and bloodline, things can get pretty nasty, and they have. Uh, so that happened. In addition to that, prior to the shooting, the, the there was a lot of secretive, and I only know this because of people who were working at the property at the time, one of which was my wife. She helped at the time the building was the SLS. It's now the Sahara again, but it went from, you know, name changes. They had added a new tower to the, to the hotel aspect of it. Long story short, there was a lot of special air force training taking place, Middle Eastern air force training. And they, it was in conjunction with our intelligence assets, and they literally rented out the whole place. I mean, we're talking big money. I mean, so they rented out the whole place. They were doing uh, training and, and preparing for something. And this was prior to this taking place, not saying that it was involved or had anything to do, but there's a lot of coincidences. And it's sort of like a shotgun blast when you see like all of when you shoot a shotgun at a wall, you, you have all these dots, but if you start con to connect the dots, you realize that there is an intended target. And I believe that the intended target was in fact the Prince of Saudi Arabia and that there was some kind of uh, secretive assassination attempt against him, which involved the owner 
the main owner or shareholder of the Mandalay Bay in the Four Seasons, who actually owned that, if I'm not mistaken, Bill Gates. And this was supposed to be pulled off quite easily, but there was already intelligence that had been gathered. They knew it was coming and things didn't go down as expected. So I don't know, you know, I'll leave that where it's at just to kind of save my own reputation, but there's a lot. Don't be dismayed by the story you hear when you start to look into this because there's a lot of stuff that's very off with the Las Vegas shooting. And I mean, I have neighbors that were there. I have, you know, people I know very closely. It's hard to live in Vegas and not know somebody that was directly affected. And it's a tragedy. And the way it went down was a tragedy. But to think that a lot of, to to think that it was what is being fed to us in the mainstream is naive, in my opinion, without looking into it. Well said, man. Yeah, I I, I can say the same with 9-11 only being in second grade, being only, you know, 60 or so miles away from New York City, it had an impact on us here. You know, that was pretty huge in comparison to to the Vegas shooting, but I can imagine that they had a similar impact on the people in, in Vegas. And, and yeah, wow, it's definitely, you know, strange that they would conceal a black ops assassination under a, you know, public shooting like that. I, it makes you wonder like the motivations of these rival factions, right? Like is one of these Saudi groups aligned with the forces of light and the other one who was maybe trying to smokescreen this assassination attempt. And this is just my speculation, but maybe they were trying to smokescreen the assassination attempt in this, you know, mass shooting event, which unfortunately is, seems like a playbook now. It seems like it's all too common here uh, in the States that they use these shootings to conceal more uh, strategic events we'll say. It seems like there is a higher order agenda, maybe not always with in the forces of light, but yeah, I think that with the Vegas shooting and all of these shootings that we're seeing, there's some kind of through line. There's some kind of plot. Now, it's something else very strange is we, we mentioned that the Four Seasons used to be owned by Bill Gates and the supposing member of the royal family to, to Prince Al-Walid bin Talal. And what's interesting is he is, he, he was hated by many of them for having so much easily accessed power, literally just got, you know, became the wealthiest man in Saudi Arabia because of who he is, you know, because he is the son of uh, the grandson of Abdul Aziz. And, you know, What's interesting and something I just looked up is he is the, the person who previously owned the Four Seasons with Bill Gates no longer does. In fact, the Four Seasons is now owned by the Prince of Saudi Arabia's company, which is called Kingdom Holding Company. And so that's very interesting that there has been a switch of ownership since this took place. And... You know, Al-Walid bin Talal has been involved in other things. There was the the situation where the CNN reporter, a very liberal from a Saudi sense reporter, was dismembered 
And I, I don't know if you remember this story went into the Emirate. Let me, let me go back here in the news, but he, he was literally, he, I think the only reason they found out what happened happened is because he was wearing an Apple watch at the time. And he went into an embassy of Saudi Arabia and was dismembered and, and ripped apart, killed. And he was also an opposing faction. The prince of Saudi Arabia was heavily, heavily accused of this. And, and obviously the, the one that pulled the strings to this, but we don't know a lot of the backstory. And when you're in a position like that, when you're the grandson of Abdulaziz, we are talking about, you have every major oil company on the planet at your fingertips. You are their puppet master. And the rules just don't apply. You know, this was something that took place. It was all over the news. Nobody could deny it. And of course, it is it's something that's been forgotten, you know, very quickly. So it, it, it's interesting how when you, when you go into the House of Saud and the Royal House, it, it, it's interesting how the family has had conk ranging all the way back to the Ottoman Empire. And, you know, it's just a power structure. And when there's power involved, these, these type of things happen. There's continuous infighting. Right, right. And we see that paralleled in what we were discussing earlier with Mr. Randolph and, and his, you know, cer the circumstances that surrounded his death. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he was murdered. There were all sorts of, you know, battles between occultists back then. Aleister Crowley came through America and had his battles with certain groups. And yeah, man, I mean, this is this is a subject that's a little out of my wheelhouse. I'm not the most versed in the political ins and outs of foreign nations, especially, you know, ones as complicated as Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole. So kudos to you to going in there and sifting it out and, and sharing what you found. And yeah, I, you know, I don't know what we could say about the book, given that it's not going to come out yet, but you know, I hope it does. Ryan, this has been a blast, man. We went into a lot of different subjects and I know you, you're most well known for your, you know, Skinwalker research. Can you tell folks where they can go to learn more about that? Yeah. The little science project I have up there in the Uinta Basin is known as spacewolfresearch.com. The podcast that I run sporadically is heroparanormal.com and the, uh, best place to like purchase books is probably Amazon, or you can go to ryanpatrickburns.com. And yeah, that's pretty much it. That's, that's the simplicity of it. Right on, man. Yeah. Thank you. And, and like I said, there's so many things that you've covered and looked into. So we got a little bit of, of all of it today. And I definitely encourage people to go and, and check out your books and your podcast. And yeah, man, thank you for joining me here for a second time. And folks listening, thank you for being here. Enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. And there is the show. Wow, Ryan Burns. And if you didn't know, Ryan has been on this show before in a different format, the Illuminati Confirmed show. He also has his own podcast, Hero Paranormal working on a lot of cool stuff so go support ryan burns and yeah fascinating stuff i certainly would think twice before 
picking up anybody uh, anywhere. I'm not, I don't think I've ever picked up a hitchhiker once. So, yeah, I think that uh, keeps me safe from skinwalkers from now. But who knows? We'll see. We are planning a 2023 tour inspired by what Chris from Forbidden Knowledge News is doing this year. So, hey, sign up on the Patreon. Help us out. Help us get some kind of Astro Van. Hell, if we get enough support, we might get a Sprinter Van. Who knows? But I'd really appreciate your support so we could take this to the next level bring you some really really amazing stuff in the form of podcasts videos and everything else in between and the best place to stay in touch is patreon of course rockfin is another great way to stay in touch and support and telegram is a free way to join in the community and talk to other people whose families think they're crazy uh quite frankly it's become sort of a peanut gallery we have a lot of the same voices every now and then a couple new people uh pop in through the fray but yeah don't be shy come on in if you see a bunch of people uh there talking already jump right in and i'll make sure they give you a warm welcome and if not i will because i'm in the telegram it's a fun place to be. You can leave us a voicemail there. Leave us a voice message. And tell us why your family thinks you're crazy. We're going to end this one on a message that we got just this past week from someone whose family thinks they're crazy. As for me, folks, you know what I'm doing. I got merch. We got gas prices way too high. Um, really, really high, but... Because of that, I really haven't gone anywhere this month. Today was an exception, St. John the Baptist Day. And to celebrate, even though I've never celebrated that holiday once ever before, knowingly, uh, Tara and I went to Hammonasset Lake in Connecticut on the Hammonasset Ley Line. The first ley line that we discovered uh, going through Connecticut. Of course, not an original discovery. Glenn Kreisberg and a gentleman whose property goes uh, within the boundaries of the Hammonasset Ley Line, they discovered it. But uh, Tara and I found it in our own unique way, and uh, we went and visited a really, really special, cool place uh, called Hammonasset Lake, and you could see pictures. If you go on the telegram, look at that. I didn't even expect for that to come full circle like that, but that deserves a sound effect. Don't you think? We got to do this, this sound effect. We haven't done this one in a while. Swell, I'll wait here. And when you find out, send me a telegram. That's right. Send us a telegram. What are you waiting for? Anyways, here we are. It's late. I got to go to bed. Brian Burns, he killed it. I recorded this episode a while ago. Not exactly fresh on my mind, but I do remember we talked about Rosicrucians. We talked about the Vegas shooting, and it was a great episode. Shout out to Ryan Burns, and of course, shout out to you, everybody giving your time to this show, tuning in every week, twice a week. And of course, if you can, we'd really appreciate your talent or your treasure. That's right, if you're a talented individual, if you're an artist, 
and you have the ability to create some art while you're listening to this podcast who knows maybe it's your day off and you want to relax send the art to the show send it to the show and i will use the episode artwork for whichever episode you listen to while you created that piece of artwork so and music as well if you if you want to send us some music i do recommend you get in touch with me first and we can maybe come up with a couple ideas or concepts of what i'm looking for or if you're bold enough just send me what you think i'd like anyways the third and most important thing you can do is send us some treasure that's right a one-time donation you can find my paypal venmo cash app link all in the description of this episode and believe it or not folks i am not (laughs) in los angeles with sam tripoli driving in a fancy car under palm trees and all that no i'm a landscaper i'm an odd job handyman a uh, blue collar kid and i've been that way for a long time um, gotta learn how to work behind the computer more it's a lot easier on my back but i've been working a lot outside i hope you can't tell in my voice i hope i don't sound tired or uninterested but the truth is i am tired so if you send us some one-time donations uh that'll help me work less on things that don't contribute to the podcast directly and free up my time so i can work explicitly directly on this podcast which i plan on doing forever until infinity and beyond so yeah help us out keep this train on the tracks as i like to say so that's about it if you're kind enough to do so please do send us a donation but hey just listening to the show is enough I don't ever tell you guys to leave us a rating or review uh, because quite frankly, I know you like the show. I could see you downloaded it. I don't really care what you think of it after that. Uh, (laughs) If you want to send your comments, that's fine. I'll read them. But yeah, I don't ask for much. And I appreciate everyone who listens. So if you have a little to spare in these trying times, help your brother Mystic Mark out. And with that... Have a great moment wherever you are in the now. I'm a little extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. In like a hundred years, we went saw bomb before guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you can stick with your old ways. But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool-Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. You can keep your blood so heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative. Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing. My folks think I'm nuts, but never question the parenting. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. The morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. You 
might think that I'm off in the deep end. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for a military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, riding, ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crap. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got kids talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You can tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Anything out, so 